0: Amen. You may be seated. We are turning now to God's Word and we're going to continue our study through uh, the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 18, which is the the scene of uh, Jesus' trial before the governor Pilate, uh, just before his uh, crucifixion. And uh, we are going to have a, a Good Friday service, uh, this, service uh, this, uh, this Friday. We hope you'd come and worship with us. And then, and then next week is Easter, and we'll be uh, studying together the resurrection of our Lord. So um, we're going to uh, look at uh, the last section here of John 18. And, uh, and then we're going to skip ahead and just take a little paragraph from the middle of John 19, starting in verse 7. So you can follow along there in your bulletin. And this is the word of the Lord. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is skipping down into chapter 19. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, Uh, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we pray for your Holy Spirit now as we uh, give our minds and hearts to study your word and we pray that you'd apply these words to us um, as your people in our day and um, give us uh, the mind of the gospel, the mind of Christ as as your church. And so uh, we thank you for these words and pray for your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as Matt mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter that commemorates when Jesus entered into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover week and he was riding on a donkey as the humble king of the Jews. And what Palm Sunday tells us is that Christianity is a political faith. Being a Christian means you have given your ultimate political allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. And you can see the political nature of the gospel, both in how this passage begins. Uh, Jesus is talking with a governor, Pilate, and it says in verse 33 So Pilate entered the headquarters again and, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? It's a political question. Are you a king? But also you see the reason that Jesus is eventually crucified is a political reason. In the end, in the, uh, chapter 19, verse 12, it says there, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And that's a profound statement. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And our uh, gospel says that Jesus is the true king of the world. And because of that, the relationship between the church and the civil government has been very complicated over the past 2,000 years. And of course, we've experienced that it's complicated this past year during COVID as the government has put restrictions on houses of worship. And one good that's come from this year, I know for me personally, has forced me to think a lot more about uh, politics, political theory, the relationship of the church and the state. And I want to share some of those insights from you from this passage today. And of course, that means that this is a a political sermon. And I want to say just a word about that before starting. Uh, We are a church that is defined by our commitment to the ultimate authority of the Bible and the secondary authority of the creeds and uh, historic creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and our, our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in the 17th century. And it's important to remember that many of the political topics we are currently debating in our country are not mentioned in our confession. Taxation levels, foreign policy, environmental questions about regulation, immigration policies, each of these is immensely complicated. Each of them falls along a spectrum that many of you might fall in a different place on the spectrum of beliefs about these things. And our church is not going to have a position on where you should fall in that spectrum. We encourage our people to apply biblical ethics to each of these discussions as best they can. But the relationship between the church and the state is mentioned in our confession. The Westminster Confession has a chapter both on the civil magistrate and the authority of church councils. And so this is a topic which our church is going to have a position and the relationship between between the church and the government has been a massive issue throughout church history that Christians have thought deeply about. And it's extremely important that as God's people we build on those insights from church history. So this morning, I want to talk about two simple questions from this passage about the relationship between the church and the state. This is what they are. First, what should the church avoid in its relationship to the state? Okay, As we think about our political life as Christians, what are some things that we should avoid? And second, what should the church promote in its relationship to the state? As we've thought about political theory as, as Christians, what are some of the guiding principles that should guide us as Christians? So what should the church avoid in its relationship to the state? And what should the church promote in its relationship to the state? And we'll find here in this passage, our Lord standing before a governor is our model. And so important insights from this passage. And so, uh, so two questions for us this morning. And the first is this: What should the church avoid in its relationship to the state? And two things I want to highlight from this passage. First, we must avoid worldliness. We must avoid worldliness. And you see the mention of the world in this passage, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I would not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Now the biblical word for world, it means systems of human culture that oppose God and his kingdom. And that could be, include the state. It includes other you know, religions or other uh, human cultures that oppose God and his kingdom. And Jesus says that the kingdoms of the wor- this world are at war with each other. And his kingdom doesn't fight like the world does. We cannot fight the political war like the world does. And to fight like the world means to become worldly. And our society is experiencing a pretty severe culture war right now. And so what does that say to us? How are we supposed to think about that as Christians? Well, St. Augustine wrote maybe the most influential uh, book in, in the history of Western culture called The City of God, which says that the whole Bible and all of human history is about a conflict between the city of God and the city of man. And this is a culture war, because the city of God and the city of man are about human societies that are in conflict with each other. But there will be a temptation for Christians to confuse the culture war between the political right and left in our country with the culture war between the city of God and the city of man. What Jesus is saying in this passage is the city of man is at war with itself. The political right and left are both the city of man, they are both the world, and if we immerse ourselves in this cult- the culture war of the left and the right, we are immersing ourselves in worldliness. And why do I say that both the right and the left are worldly? Because they are rarely an expression of pure Christian ethics. Politics are messy and pragmatic, and they become less about what's right and wrong, they become less about what does Jesus teach us about these things, and they become more about what works and what doesn't work. That's what pragmatism is. And this passage is one of the most quintessential pictures of pragmatic politics ever written in history. You see in verse 37 where it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And he doesn't wait for an answer. For Pilate, his political life is not about the truth. He's cynical about the truth. It's about uh, maintaining his political agenda. And some of you have maybe read through the Gospels and started to think, you know, maybe Pilate wasn't that bad of a guy. You know, you look at verse 12 down, down there in chapter 19. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. And you might think, you know, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. But historians have said Pilate was not a good guy who was trying to maintain justice. He was a pragmatist. He did not want to do a favor for the Jews. And eventually he crucified someone that he knew was innocent. This is a massive warning to us. Immersing ourselves in the political process and political agendas is going to be a huge temptation toward worldliness. And our hearts and minds must be shaped by the voice of Jesus far more than the political debates of our culture. Now let me clarify one thing about that. We should prioritize as Christians the conflict between the city of God and the city of man more than the culture war between the right and the left. But there may be touch points between these two wars. Christians might find allies for kingdom work both on the left and the right. They might find allies in caring for the poor or immigrants on the left or allies for religious freedom or the pro-life movement on the right. But that's like the US finding the, the Soviet Union as an ally in World War II. We might fight battles together. We might have a common enemy in Germany. But we don't think that then we are the Soviet Union. There is a distinction. No American political movement represents the kingdom of God. And actually, the most careful theologians in history, including Augustine, said that not even the church represents. The city of God. Because the church is sinful. The church is flawed. The church is God's primary agent in bringing his kingdom to, to the earth. But we should not even equate the church to the city of God. So how much less can we equate the political right or left to the city of God? And so first, the church must avoid worldliness and engaging in politics. But there are two ditches that the church can fall into when it comes to politics. One is worldliness. But the other ditch is what you might call otherworldliness. Okay, we should avoid worldliness and we should avoid otherworldliness. And what I mean by otherworldliness is, you know, as some people say, being so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I was talking to one of our deacons Tyson Smith, and he was uh, pointing out that sometimes Christians can put such an emphasis on biblical ethics and theology and the theory that it never touches down to reality and the real issues that we're facing in our society. And this is a challenge I face as a pastor because historically I've taken a pretty apolitical posture as a preacher. I don't say much about political policies in my sermons, um, and I've always been uncomfortable with that. Because our church believes deeply that grace in the gospel shapes every aspect of human life. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, his goal is to bring every thought captive to obey Christ. Why would politics, such an important area of life, be excluded from this? Well, the error of otherworldliness comes from misunderstanding passages like this one. When Jesus says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, it doesn't mean that his kingdom is not in this world. Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation 11 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of heaven is not a spiritual place way off in the netherworld. The kingdom of heaven is the place where Jesus is king, and Jesus has been given all authority in both heaven and earth. His heavenly rule is coming to earth. And so Tyson's absolutely right. God's truth cannot just stay in the spiritual realm. It must take on flesh and transform human culture. And that means we can't be apolitical. Politics impact people's lives. It also means there are going to be points of cultural conflict between the church and the world around us. We have to engage in the public square. And so you see the tension that we're called to live in. We can't be worldly and immersed in the pragmatism of the left and the right, but we also can't disengage from the political and cultural conflict. We must be in the world, but not of the world. And this tension we cannot do in our own wisdom. It only comes from the mind of Christ. It's what Jesus says here in verse 37, the last part of verse 37. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And it turns out that historically the mind of Christ has had immense impact on political theory. And so the, the first point, we must the church must avoid both worldliness and other worldliness. But this leads to our second question, that what then should the church promote in its relationship to the state? And I want to give three answers to that as well. Okay, Three things the church should promote. First... We should promote in the church a willingness to be persecuted, a willingness to be persecuted. And one of the big messages of this passage is that Jesus, the Son of God, is being tried unjustly by a Roman governor. And he could call a legion of angels to destroy Pilate. He could call the crowd of disciples from Galilee to take up arms. And instead, he receives the crucifixion. And when he says in verse 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth, what the cross was, what Jesus was doing on the cross was he was exposing human evil. And uh, actually later in the New Testament, it says that Jesus has disarmed all the principalities and powers by making a public display of their evil by receiving them in crucifixion. This is different than a revolution. There have been countless revolutions throughout history where oppressed peoples rise up in revolt and they put in place a government that's just as corrupt as the one that they had overthrown. Jesus transforms the world by exposing evil and bearing witness to the truth. And ultimately that happens through the cross. Jesus is clear, if we are disciples of Jesus, we too must be willing to take up our crosses and follow him. And if you read the New Testament, the relationship between the church and the state in the New Testament, this is a big part of it, is persecution. And one of the most important places, 1 Peter 2, is one of the primary places to talk about church and state in the New Testament And it's where Peter talks about, you know, Christians should be law-abiding citizens. We should obey the, the emperors and governors and we should do good in society. And listen to these words that Peter says. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, who judges justly. Clearly, Jesus before Pilate is a model for us. And by the way, you know, Peter's insistent that Christians be persecuted for doing good. Maybe we should weave into this point that the Bible says over and over again we should be law-abiding citizens, living quiet lives, minding our own business, praying for our political leaders. But we must have a willingness to endure persecution if it ever comes. And historically, it's proven that in the midst of persecution, the church grows. As one pastor from a persecuted country recently said, "We do not ask that the persecution goes away, but that we would remain faithful through it." Now, I know that this raises a, uh, an important question of the place of revolution. Uh, you know, our nation was founded by revolution, and uh, I would—is it ever appropriate for Christians to participate in revolution? The default of the New Testament is. I'd say, anti-revolution. But there have been careful arguments by Christians about when it is justified. That would take a whole longer sermon for me to give some of what those justifications are. I think it's an important thing to think about. And it goes beyond the scope of this passage. But what I do want to say is that the truth of Jesus, as it's gone out into the world, it has shaped political theory. And so the first thing I want to say, what should the church promote? The first thing, I think, is within the church a willingness to embrace persecution. The second thing that I think we should promote is a respect for the spheres of sovereignty. A respect for the spheres of sovereignty. And spheres of sovereignty is a political theory generally associated with Abraham Kuyper. He was a Dutch theologian and pastor, and then he became the prime minister of the Netherlands. And sphere sovereignty says that both the state and the church have distinct spheres of authority that have been entrusted to them by God and that work in parallel. And this hasn't always been the relationship of the church and state throughout history. For example, in the medieval church, uh, the, the Roman Catholic church had power over the state. The, the pope had a lot of uh, civil power. The pope crowned the emperor, and many of the bishops played the role of the civil magistrate and you know would, would punish people in society. And so the relationship was that the church was over the state. And then during the time of the Reformation, Many Protestants were being persecuted. And, uh, and so they went to kings and princes and said, we need protection from the persecution we're happening." And so uh, in, in Germany, in uh, England, and in Scandinavia, uh, the church came under the protection of the state. And so the state would buy church buildings for churches and appoint pastors into the churches. And so then now you have the, the state was over the church. Both of these arrangements have proven problematic. And you can see in this passage how Jesus talks about Pilate. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. This is such an important statement. Pilate has authority, but it has been given to him by God, and it's recognized by Jesus. And so what's happened is that even though the church has grown through persecution, Christian theology has been instrumental in developing a just political theory. It was Christians who insisted that all humans are sinful and therefore governments need checks and balances. It was Christians who said that all humans are made in the image of God and therefore have rights to life and freedom and dignity. It was Christians who said that kings are under God by covenant and therefore don't have absolute power to do whatever they want. And when it came to the church and state, it was theologians like Calvin and Kuyper who developed the distinct authorities of sphere sovereignty. God has given authority to the state to maintain order and prevent evil and injustice in a society. God has given authority to church councils to order public worship, to oversee the administration of the word and sacraments and church discipline, and including the appointing of pastors and elders in the churches. Now, I think it's probably better for us to not describe this as a separation of church and state. That's often how we talk about it in America. Um, Because On the one hand, the church might say, yeah, we don't want the government coming into our church and telling us what to do. But if it's a a separation of church and state, then the government's going to say to us, well, we don't want Christians coming in here and talking about the Bible and what they believe. We want to have an influence on the government. And so I think it should be a respecting of each other's authority and recognizing an influence. And so, for example... We don't want the church legislating the Christian life over American people, but we do want Christian representatives living out their faith in the halls of Congress. The church should influence the state. Similarly, during COVID, our church has said that the state does not have jurisdiction over our worship service. The authority over the church is in the church councils. That's our local session, our elders, the presbytery, and the general assembly. But we have accepted the state's influence. We've limited our capacity, spaced out our seating. We are not saying to the state, Your voice, you don't have any voice or influence here. And so we're living in that tension. We've probably done it imperfectly, but you can see the tension has been here this past year. And if I could just say a word about that, you know, today we take another step forward in, in uh, moving to three services. Um, that's been somewhat in response to the, to the state. Um, I think probably a, a lingering question is we as a church move toward normalcy is the lingering question around mask wearing. And, uh, and we, you know, st- that's still a division in our church. And I'll, I'll tell you, my heart as a pastor is I want to see a diversity of views worshiping together. And uh, so we're not um, integrating mask wearing and non-mask wearing today um, but I hope that's something that, as a church, we're talking about, and that our elders are talking about. And at some point, we're going to have to move in that direction. And um, and I think that this, the our desire to respect people's consciences, is related to a third answer to this uh, this question of what should we promote? What should the church promote in its relationship to the state? So we've said a willingness to be persecuted for doing good, a respect for the spheres of sovereignty. And I think the third thing that we should seek to promote is a Christian pluralism. A Christian pluralism. And what do I mean by that? Christians should promote a society where people are free to accept or reject the claims of Christianity based on their conscience. And that will create a society where a plurality of beliefs are allowed and tolerated, including ours. And in verse 37 again, it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you were a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is building a kingdom. Jesus has the biggest kingdom in the world right now. It's, it's billions of people. It's bigger than China. It's bigger than India. It's in every nation. People who submit to his rule. And how, does Jesus, how is Jesus' kingdom different from the kingdoms of the world? Well, one of the ways is in the ways that we show our allegiance to him. In the ancient world, politics and religion were closely tied to each other. And the Roman Empire was very tolerant of all kinds of religions. You could worship whatever God you wanted as long as you also sacrificed to the imperial cult. As long as you included allegiance to Caesar. And Christians said, listen, we will pray for Caesar, but we won't offer sacrifices to him. We we don't believe that he is a God. And the Romans would respond, we don't care whether you actually believe Caesar is a God as long as you offer your sacrifices to him. We are happy to have an empire of mindless slaves showing their obedience. And on this point, Jesus was radically different. He came to bear witness to the truth. Jesus did not want mindless obedience. The one thing Jesus demanded of his people was that they believe. And we need to appreciate how significant of a cultural innovation that was. It means that all those slaves and prostitutes and rich and poor and educated and uneducated and common people who were becoming Christians in the Roman Empire needed to learn about who Jesus was. They needed to understand his claims. It needed to resonate with their hearts. And, uh, and they needed to believe it with their minds. That is why we should want a pluralism. We want a society where all the different worldviews get a fair hearing, and we believe Jesus is the most beautiful, the most just, the most truthful, the most healthy for human life. And actually, in the fourth century, after Constantine the Roman Emperor became a Christian, many people think that he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's actually not true. Through the Edict of Milan, Constantine made all religions legal, including Christianity, and ended the persecution of Christians. And Lactantius, who was the theologian who influenced Constantine, and his theology really shaped the Edict of Milan, said people need to be free to follow their conscience so they can hear the truth of Jesus and believe it. And the reason I say we should promote Christian pluralism is because historically Christianity has been the only justification for plurality. And because Christians have been persecuted so frequently, they have been the greatest advocates for pluralism as well. And this is how beautiful and just the kingdom of Jesus is. It is not worldly. It doesn't have the warfare and violence and strife of the kingdoms of the world, but it is also not otherworldly. Jesus' kingdom is coming to earth. And has throughout history been transforming human society in every capacity, including politics. And the way that Jesus has done that is by embracing persecution for doing good. He, was ex- he has exposed the injustice of the world and borne witness to the truth by going to the cross. And so God has given him all authority in heaven and earth. The state is under his authority. The church is under his authority with different spheres of sovereignty. But at the heart of his kingdom is that each of us would freely come to know his love, his truth, his wisdom, his justice, his goodness. That we would know it with our minds and believe it with our hearts and be set free. May his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are gathered here in worship because we love your kingdom. We are so grateful that you have transferred us from the the domain of, of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. We love to live under his rule. We love to hear his commands and obey them. We love to hear his promises and depend on him for protection and leadership. And Lord, we pray that as a church, you would, by your spirit, help us to live in this tension that we'd be neither worldly nor otherworldly, that we would uh, um, respect the, uh, the spheres of sovereignty and, and, and both maintain the authority you've given to us as a church while, while uh, respecting um, the authority you've given to the government. We do pray that your gospel would go forth in our lands, and that many would hear it and hear the beautiful love of Jesus and their hearts would be turned to him. We pray this in his name, amen. We have the opportunity now to respond to the good news.